Well, listen, we started a series last week on 1 John. 1 John, then me, because 1 John is leading the way. He's talking. John, you know, the Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John, is leading the way in how we should be intimate with the Father. And God wants to be intimate with us because he loves us and wants a relationship with us. And um, we talked about light last week. So I pray this last week you walked in the light and you continue to do that. But, you know, God wants to draw even closer to us and cares about us. But in order for that to happen, you have to give God the right to expose you. We talked about that last week, to walk in the light where things are revealed that we couldn't see on our own, but we choose to walk there. And today we're going after chapter two as we preach through this whole book. So if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, tells us that an intimate relationship with God is possible because of advocacy and the work of Jesus Christ. That means the very reason you and I can get it on with God, if you will, all right? That uh, he's a God that wants to be up close and personal with us and not distance or some ways away, but he is near. You know, Jesus is not some historical figure lived and died, rose again 2,000 years ago so that we could just go to heaven. He lives to make intercession for you. In other words, he died to save you. He lives to keep you close. How many of you are with me? He died to save us, and now he lives to keep us close, that we can talk and we can walk with him and we can have a relationship. And so he says, verse 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. You know, he's saying, you know, don't, don't continue to sin, but, but I know you will sin, but when you do, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, that big word, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the entire world. Advocate is sort of a legal term that you've heard before, it's one that is called alongside to help, that Jesus Christ right now, today, represents you and me as believers in the courtroom of God. You have a defense attorney from Satan who is, the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, you and me. Satan will accuse us in the courtroom of God. Why? Because he wants to break fellowship between you and God. That is his goal. If he can break fellowship between us and God, hey, he's won a big battle. The prosecuting attorney, Satan, comes into the courtroom, but God's light shines on that area. The Holy Spirit shines on your conscience, and you recognize and say, man, I just lied, or I have sinned, whatever way. See, if you're, if you're getting more sensitive to those times that you sin, that means that you are growing in Christ. How many of you are with me say amen? amen? If you're getting more sensitive to the times that you sin or before you even sin, it means you are growing in your relationship with the Lord. If all you do is point out the sin in everyone else's life, you're not growing. Now, can I hear an amen on that one? Yes. If all you're doing is pointing out the sin of everybody else around you, you are not growing in the Lord. Jesus is your defense attorney, an advocate. He is your lawyer, and you should know him. How many of you know you should know your lawyer? How many of you with me? You should know your lawyer who's representing you in the courtroom of God. 
He is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Now notice it says the righteous. Can you say that with me? The righteous. Just make sure your lawyer doesn't have the same problem you have. Right? Right, so you don't want somebody representing you before the Father in heaven that has sin in their own life. But Jesus Christ is our lawyer who is sinless and perfect, who is an advocate with the Father. Your defense attorney is the judge's son. There's a lot of relief in that. There's a lot of safety in that, and we are thankful. The spiritual person is not the one who sees nothing wrong. That's walking in darkness. The spiritual person sees the things they are doing wrong, and they want to correct it. Verses 3 through 11 talk about the requirement of fellowship, where Jesus is just not a savior out there, but he is a friend in our lives. He is a friend in our lives. He's going to let us know in this that obedience rooted in love is the requirement of intimate fellowship with God. That's the basis, that obedience rooted in love is the requirement of intimate fellowship with God. He says this, now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, if we keep his commandments, he introduces us to the theme of obedience. You will have an increase in your life because there's an increase of obedience to him. The light's on, you see it, and by that you adjust your course in your life to keep that and be obedient, and so you're increasing in your relationship. Intimacy comes by an increase in obedience. It's possible to be a Christian and increase in disobedience. See, you can be a Christian in name only, and you can increase in disobedience rather than obedience to the Lord. That's so important. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments that he's a liar and the truth is not in it. Remember, remember, your intimacy is tied to your walk and not your talk. We talked, we talked about this last week, and I pray that we walked it out this last week, that your intimacy is tied very closely to your walk more than your talk, your legs, not your lips. Is your commitment to his commandments increasing? You know, one of the signs of walking in the Spirit is you're keeping the commandments more, not less. Not because you're under the law, that's not where we're called to be, he says, but grace doesn't negate the commandment. It gives you the ability to fulfill the law because the Spirit gives life inside of you. So now you know where Aerosmith got walk this way, talk this way. They thought they made it up. It came from Scripture, right? That's it. Don't make me sing it, right? No. One of the reasons you should want to come to church is to find out, one of the many reasons, is to find out what God's expectations of you really are. Because it's hard to keep what you don't know. How many of you ever read the owner's manual in your car? Can I see your hands? Come on, let me see them. It's about the same it was in the first service. There are very few people that have opened the glove box or whatever it may be, and you've pulled out the owner's manual and you have read the owner's manual. But built into the car so that you find out what is all the options here. So many Christians just want to ride to heaven and not find out about the bells and the whistles of their conversion where God has provided so much more for you if you will read his instruction manual. Amen? Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. 
when you are increasing in obedience to the Lord, you are simultaneously increasing in relationship. Why? Because you and I then are being perfected in Christ's love. When you move from, you know, keeping his commandment, like what you ought to do, to keeping his word, it means God can say it without having to command it, but you are going to do it because you and I love the Father so much that his love is perfecting us that we willingly want to follow after him. It's like those of you parents in this room and all of us growing up in homes that we realize moms and dads, when your kids are young, you're commanding them to do, don't do this, do that, right? But you find then as your love grows and your love grows in them, that what you see through that is that the love is being perfected so much that they want to do it to please you because it is right. That is the same condition with God. And so you see that, you see them develop, they respond because they want a relationship that is strong. That is the place you know maturity has set in in your life. God, it pleases you, so I will do it. Relationship has taken over now, so rules without relationship don't work. Isn't that right? Rules without relationship, they do not work. We realize that in our homes. We realize that in our churches. Verse 6 tells us how this deepens now. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, the word abide means to stay or remain in today's language, we would say to hang out. The more you hang out with Christ, the more like Christ you hang out with. Stay or remain in Jesus' presence, you, you will do what he says because why? You've hung out with him and you walk like he walks. We have to be in his presence so that he can get the sin and the junk of the world off of us. You're going to have to stay there. It's not in his presence one moment. In another moment, outside of his presence, going to do what you want to do. It's kind of like washing dishes. We have dishwashers now, but a lot of people, you know, grew up and you washed dishes with mom or dad or whatever it may be, and you took turns, and you realize on that plate or that pan was stuff that was hard, dried, and crusted that was on there. Well, what did you do? You ran the hot, hot water with some detergent and you put the plate or the pan inside of there and you let it soak there long enough so that when you came to it, you could easily get it off. God is saying, I want you to soak in my presence so I don't have to sit there and try to scrub and pry at the junk and the funk that's in your life so that you can be free from sin. He continues, verse 7, brethren, remember he's talking to believers. This is not to non-believers, but Christians. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and you? Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Now, there's a major change that has occurred from verses 3 and 4 to verse 7 and following in the book. Take a look at that and tell me what has changed in the verses from 3 to 4 to verse 7. What has changed? We're going to see if you're looking. Talk to me. I feel like I'm alone. 
You're staring at me. It's weird. <laughs> commandment. So you see it's commandment, not commandments. From plural to singular, why the change up? The commandments, what commandments do I have to keep? Nobody's perfect, so which ones do I have to keep in order to have intimacy for this abiding, ongoing relationship? What God does is he summarizes here. He goes to, to the singular from the plural. You do one thing well. Uh, it's not new, but, it, but it's old and old and new at the same time. I mean, how does that happen? It is the commandment. What is that? The commandment to love. If you get this right, then all the other ones fall into place. He's saying it's old because of Leviticus chapter 19 where he's talking about this. Jesus told it to John, though, which wasn't new to him, but new to the second generational Christians that he's speaking to. What is he saying? Love addresses all of the commandments. Love is the basis for all the commands of the Father in heaven. Verses 9 through 11, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What we know is this. Love has gotten watered down these days, Right? that it's emotional sentimentalism and it's gooey. On the other hand, it's duty. I must do this because I love you. Chapter four says this, and we're gonna get this in two weeks. God is love. It's the essence of who he is. You can't talk about love without talking about God. It is the source. When you talk about love, you are talking about God. You talk about this because we understand that God is infinitely love. When it says to love your brother, that's not gooey feelings and neither is it hardcore duty. It means I want to meet your need in such a way that brings glory back to the Father in heaven. If you hate your brother, remember he's talking to believers, so that's meaning if you hate another Christian, he wants you to know something that is very serious. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. So to hate your brother, and this can be brother or sister, as you know in this, is to lose fellowship with your father. He says, this is serious business. This is not only a sibling problem, you now have a parental problem in me. He's talking about hating the person. When you're in the light, that there's no cause for stumbling, that's a powerful statement. He will light the rest of your life if love is paramount inside of you. Love, though, has to be paramount inside of you. That's the foundation. We love this verse. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did it, and he led the way, and I love Scripture because as we're talking about this and bringing the truth out of 1 John, from the Apostle John, way back from the Gospel of John, we realize that he led the way in doing this. He didn't just talk. He walked it because while you and I we're yet in our sin. He did it. He died. Not only did he talk, he walked the walk. This is why God wants us to have a spiritual family so that you and I can practice this stuff. Some of you are going to practice this in the parking lot when you leave. When somebody cuts you off today and you leave, you get to practice the love of God. 
When you go out on Interstate 81, you're getting an opportunity today or this week in the midst of your commute to practice the love of God. Amen? That's a beautiful thing about the church and the habitat of the church. This is really a lab. Really. Right? Now, we're not in heaven. We're not perfect yet, but we want, the perfected love of God can be in us. So this is worth trying and worth working on. Chris and I were talking in a car ride yesterday just about looking at how if we looked at the church and we have people understand how important and vital it is that people would look at the church as a spiritual family and live that way because that's how God says he wants us to live, as a spiritual family together in the body of Christ. And, and, and the problem is we live in a world that is full of dysfunctional biological families. That's the world we live in. I get that. So many times what happens is we bring the stuff and the junk from out there, and we can many times bring it into the heart and the life of the church. And God says, no, no, I don't operate that way. I love you. This is a lab. We're not going to do everything right. We're probably going to get mad. We're going to celebrate, though, together. But we have an opportunity to practice the love of God and speak up against dysfunction in the body of Christ because it's not of him. Amen? And we start thinking in those terms and we come into the body of Christ, we start getting a little bit of a revelation of who Jesus is. A revelation of his love. When I was in college, I worked for three years at a Lutheran church as a janitor, and I had those were three blessed years. God gave me that job. I mean, I didn't tell the first services, but I was sitting in the job placement coordinator's office at North Central Minneapolis. And I was sitting there and saying, I need a job like this because my hours, are, my classes, I'm taking a full load. And, and he said, I don't know if that's going to happen because that's kind of some odd hours. And I kid you not, the phone rang. He picked it up and said, yeah, hey, this is Dan Larson, uh, job placement coordinator here at North Central. Person was calling and saying, hey, we need one of your students to come over for these hours during the week. And they don't have to drive. It's just a few blocks from North Central. And he said, I think I have the guy for you <laughs> right here. That's God. I am humbly thankful. I'd go into the boiler room every day to get cleaning supplies. And the boiler heated the water. It's two huge boilers in this huge Lutheran church. I'd go in there every day, get cleaning supplies. You understand the boiler, the boiler room's hot. If you were in a boiler room. It heated the water, took the water by pipes to every part of the church. On the side of the boiler was a tube of water. The head janitor showed me once, one day he said, listen, I just want to show you this. I didn't have to work on the boiler. I just walked past it because I didn't have that knowledge, but he did. And he showed me as the head janitor, he says, we know how much water is in the boiler by looking at this tube. We, we can't see physically into the boiler. It's too hot. It's encapsulated, but we can't open it. But we know how much is in there by the volume in the tube. When we watch the tube, it tells us the condition of the water. God's too big that we can't get our arms around it, so he's given us a tube. The tube is your relationship with your brother and sister in Christ. 
He says if the tube is half full, your relationship with God is half full. If the tube is all the way up, your relationship with God is all the way up. You can always see the tube. Intimacy with God is intricately tied with intimacy with one another. If you want to be close to God, then start by looking who's next to you right now. Some people think it has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with it. Now, verses 12 through 17, John gives us five reasons. I encourage you to take notes because I am crunching this chapter down when we could probably take weeks on it. So take notes. Five reasons why we should not love this world. With this ability He says there's an ability with the world and will affect your intimate fellowship with the Father in heaven. The first one, don't love the world because of what it is. The world is from the Greek word cosmos. It's the word that we get, our English word cosmopolitan and cosmetic. It's from organized arrangements as a system. You might understand this better. Like when we look at the world, they'll say our financial system in the world or in America, it speaks of a certain kind of value. The world is a spiritual system headed by Satan. It's designed to draw you and me from God's love and experiencing God's will. That's what you need to know. The world is that system that leaves God out. How do you know if we love the world? He does not say don't live in it. We have to live in the world, right? He does not say don't use it. He says don't love it. Why? Because it determines your decisions because it owns your affections. One of the great struggles that many Christians feel is they don't sense intimacy with God is because they, don't sense, they do sense intimacy with the world. If you and I hang out at a flower shop long enough, we're going to smell like flowers. Isn't that true? You're going to smell good. If you hang around the cows long enough, you're going to smell like dung. Right? This is true. Where you're hanging out determines everything about you and your expression to this world and to God. Second, reason not to love the world, we are not to love the world because of who we are. Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. The word children is to all believers. There's two things all believers have in common. One, we all partake of the Father's nature. That's what the Bible says. Secondly, because our sins are forgiven. Something in the world, something the world could never do, and that is separate the believer from their sins, but Jesus Christ can and did. All God's children. This is what he's speaking to. All God's children. Verse 13 and 14, he breaks them up according to levels or categories. This is amazing. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. He splits Christians up into three categories. I want you to get this. He splits them up into three categories for us to understand it. As he says, fathers, young men, and children. Children in verse 13 is different from verse 12. Not children by nature, but he's talking to children by development. He is saying some are infants, they are baby Christians. Others are adolescents, young men or young women. 
Others are mature fathers, are mature believers in Christ. He's saying your goal is to move from being a child to becoming a father. That is, God's goal is always maturity in him. Can I hear an amen? That is what we experience on a daily basis, your day-to-day walk with God by irritations, frustrations, and celebrations. Those are the ongoing work of God inside of us all through the day, all through the week. Now, it takes five years for a Christian to be a father. How did he come up with that? Paul gives us this in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, by this time, you ought to be mature. He went there and led them to Christ in 50 AD. He writes 1 Corinthians uh, at the end of the chapter, 55 AD. That's five years. If you're applying yourself, you should reach a basic level of maturity if you choose. Then comes a young man. He said, a young woman, an adolescent, a teenager. Teenagers, he's speaking to you. That's those who are now struggling to progress in their spiritual life. We all go through that. The peer pressure is so great. The temptation is so great. You have overcome the evil one, he said. That's powerful. Those of you teenagers that are in the room, you should be encouraged. He's speaking to you today. He says, you have overcome the evil one. You can do it, teenager, no matter the struggle, no matter what is going on in your heart today, no matter the peer pressure, no matter the temptation. You have overcome the evil one. You can approach them as victors in Christ, and they don't need to dominate you. Then he says to the fathers, you have known, you have known him from the beginning. Their knowledge of God is mature, and they don't go back and forth and vacillate. They are in a settled position. A father will hold their ground. You've seen God work in the past, and you know what he can do today. Fathers are always steady ground in the shifting sand of culture and society that we live in. That is a father. That is maturity. At each level maturity, he says, children, teenagers, fathers, you know him. You, you know you've got a daddy. How many of you know you've got a daddy today? Right? That means somebody is taking care of them. If you've never won someone to Christ, you're not a father. Because that's what fathers do. They reduplicate themselves. The Bible says maturity procreates. You reproduce who you are. This isn't a knock. This isn't a sleight of hand against you. But fathers, spiritual fathers and mothers, they reproduce if they are mature in the Lord. I would encourage you, if you've never won in anyone to the Lord, I would encourage you today to ask God, what is and who is that person in my life that needs you? You probably already know that without asking the Lord. And begin to witness to them so that you can reproduce who you are in someone else because that is a for sure sign of maturity in the Lord. Fathers, you hold your ground. Then he, re- he repeats it for, in verse 14. And you notice he leaves out children. Children are totally dependent. Are you a child, an infant? This is what he's saying in here. The only time they eat, how many of you know the only time a child or an infant eats is when someone else feeds them? I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm talking spiritually now. 
If you look in the physical realm, we understand a child is an infant, a baby. They can't feed themselves. They need somebody else to feed them. If all you are getting is the word of the Lord on Sunday mornings only by me or any of the pastoral staff or by a special speaker, he relates it to you being an infant. That makes sense. He's saying, I don't want you to stay there. You have to begin to learn to feed yourself, to have steps along the way of reading the word, a daily diet of me, the presence of the Lord continue to hold their ground in the world we live in. So, so he's saying in, this, in an infant, so God's word does not abide. Teenagers struggle, but when and abide. Fathers hold their ground in the world. Third, don't let the love of the world, don't love the world because of what it costs. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The reality of God for you will be greatly, greatly reduced if you love the world. See, the problem is the love of the Father is then not in you. He said, don't love the world. He said, because the cost is so great, it's so great because it has to do with your soul. The fourth reason, do not love the world because of what it offers. It offers three things, and here's what it offers. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And everybody here has dealt with all of these throughout their life some way, somehow. Verse 16, he gives three desires. Flesh is the craving of the body, physical appetites. Eating is legitimate. Gluttony is worldly. Drinking is a legitimate appetite. Drunkenness is worldly. We see sex as a legitimate appetite inside the boundaries of marriage. Immorality is worldly. He says, then the lust of the eyes, what you are thinking in your mind, the Bible says the eye is the gateway to the mind. And he looks at this, and we know that's how covetousness can come in. TV bombards us. The Internet bombards us with things that we want, we think we should have. Then the pride, the arrogance of life. It's living to impress I am such a somebody. But the Bible says to walk humbly with your God. If God has been good to you, you should praise him and not continue to inflate your head. Are you with me? Finally, don't love the world because of how long it lasts. Verse 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You always know worldliness because it makes time more important than eternity. Like a drug addict, you can't, you, you have to keep repeating the lust to try to fulfill your, your longing. You have to continue. You continue to go back to it, back to it, back to it, or whatever craving of the flesh, you continue to go back to it. It's a longing. It's, it's like the state fair that happens every year. It offers us fun and glitter, but it only lasts that long. I mean, you eat the corn dog, you drink the lemonade, and it's good for five minutes, right? Maybe not even that good. Nobody I know lives at the State Fair or Walt Disney World. Why? It's not the real thing. We visit there. There's nothing wrong in visiting these places. I'm not saying that. You visit there, but you are passing through you know, you are passing by. You are passing away. The more you love the world, the more of the world you demand, the foggier the world to come becomes. If we could just get only a mental picture of heaven before we get there, we would live differently today. 
See, there are adversaries in the world that he talks about that will come in just when you're at the point of progress, the enemy comes in to bring a detour. The Bible calls them antichrists. Their job is to blind the mind of the non-Christian so they don't become a Christian and to distract the mind of the believer so they will never get to enjoy being a Christian. If you're not enjoying being a Christian today, you have believed the lies of the enemy. Can I hear an amen? This life is to be enjoyed in Christ Jesus. He's promised us an abundant life in him. According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, they have a system of doctrines of demons. That's what it says. It's not my word. And they are taught that. It's amazing because two things they are out to control in that passage says they're out to control our diets and what we eat and our marriages. You're thinking, really? Yeah, read it. You get so wrapped up in all of that, you forget about the main deal. It's about the main thing, Jesus. That the enemy tries to come in and destroy our marriages. Verse 18 and 19, little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, coming, even many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In other words, there were folks hanging around that weren't with the program. They had their own agenda. God's major concern is that you and I know the truth. Is that true? Amen. That's right. When you spend time with the truth, it's then you can combat the lies of the enemy, the lies of the cults, the lies of the demonic that is out there, that is very real, whether we want to believe it or not, it is at work. That he says the only way to know and combat that is you have to know the truth. You have to. When the truth was proclaimed, he said the Antichrist left. Truth determines legitimacy. Satan can't handle the truth because his native tongue is a lie. He is a liar, the Bible says. He's a liar. That's why to get us separated from Christ, he must get us operating in a lie, believing in a lie, because he knows, Satan knows, God won't visit a lie and he won't visit the truth. Partial truth is still a lie in God's eyes. How many of you know that? John said, if they were of us, they would still be here with us. We have to be people that operate in the truth. Why? So that when we show up to church, we know whether it's the truth or whether it's a lie. So that when we go on our campuses, we know in school, I know that's truth or I know that's a lie. In, in our homes, is that truth or is that lie? In politics, is that truth or is that lie? And I don't know about you, but I think I'm talking to a crowd that's got their head screwed on straight. We are living in the day of great deceitfulness. We are living in the day of great deceitfulness, and the body of Christ needs to wake up. There is great deceit happening right now. I'm not blowing smoke. You see it just like I do. You should be able to take the word of the Lord out, let the Holy Spirit lift it off the page and say, that what they are saying, that is wrong. That is not of God. And let me tell you something. I don't preach down at other preachers and other things like that. But every gospel message you hear on the radio or on TV doesn't mean it's the gospel truth either. Come on. You better know how to test it. Don't just swallow it. 
You've got to know how to test it. Come on, think for ourselves, body Christ. Bring out the word. And when you're trying to decipher, that's the great work of the Holy Spirit. He will help you decipher the truth. He will lead and guide you in all truth. All truth. Satan can't handle the truth. He's a liar. Where do we have power over our adversaries? It is in the anointing because he says it. Everybody wants the anointing. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. He says it again in verse 27. He tells them you abide in the anointing. Every believer that's come to Christ has the anointing on their life. It's not just for the elite. It's not for the person that stands here on this stage or any stage in America for the church. The anointing is just not reserved for them. It is reserved for every believer in Jesus. There is a great use for the anointing. This anointing must be abided in. He says, stay or remain in contact with the Father. The Antichrist were claiming special information. This is another thing I want you to know. God has nothing to do with secret societies. Why? Because God says, what you heard from me, you can take and shout it from the hilltops. You can shout it from the mountaintop. You can shout it from on top of your house. See, let me tell you something. There's a lot of secret societies in the world we live in. Young person, I want to caution you. Immature believer in this room and even mature believers, be careful. Secret societies are not of God. If you are wrapped up in a secret society, that is not of God. That is darkness. It's time for you to start walking in the light. The spiritual world, world of God is not sacred. Now you say, what is anointing? Well, that's a hard word to kind of encapsulate in a sentence, but let's try. Anointing is the internal teaching of the Holy Spirit that illuminates the believer to the teaching of God and the detection of deception. Anointing is the internal teaching of the Holy Spirit that illuminates the believer to the teaching of God and the detection of deception. Every believer at the moment of salvation gets a new mind. Is that true? Yes. You're a new creation. You get a new mind, new understanding. You are able to understand in Christ the things that you can't understand, couldn't understand before. 1 Corinthians 2. He wants to Xerox God's truth into your soul. How do you know if the anointing is working? The more mature you become, the less you need me. You know how to hear from God for yourself. It doesn't mean you don't need the word of God, but you have a direct dependency on him. What do you do with it? It's like the German shepherd that was asked, can you beat a skunk? He said, I sure can beat a skunk. On most days, it's not worth the fight. He says, what do you do with it after you whip it? Illumination means bring to light. The ability to see the invisible that's the potential God has given to us. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus after baptism. Remember this? After he was baptized by John the Baptist, it said the Holy Spirit came and descended on him as a what? A dove. It said a dove. The one thing that you, and you read up on it, and you look at it, you see that a, a dove would come, and they only come on clean things. They will only come and land on that which is clean. They are sensitive. They don't land on everything. Pigeons do. And let me tell you something. There's a lot of pigeon religion out there. There's a lot of pigeon religion in the world that we live in that Christians will go land on anything. When the Bible says the dove of the Holy Spirit came and descended upon Jesus. 
What's he sensitive about? 21 through 23. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And I wasn't able in this context to go talk about capital A Antichrist. As you know and you're reading and understanding in, last, in these last days, that the Bible said there will emerge an Antichrist, capital A, that will come forward, that will claim to have the knowledge of the financial difficulties, the conundrums, the chaos of this world. That's what it says. That he will claim that he will claim to have this knowledge. He will claim there will be a lot of deception that will take place. But in this scripture, he's also talking about the small a antichrist. Those that were in us, we the truth. When we preached the truth, they left us. They could not stay any longer around the truth because they're full of lies. That's why it's important to speak the truth. But they would not stay, and, and it's so important. Who is a liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? I have used this um, when I've talked to people about being delivered from Satan. This is one of the questions I've asked them. Can you say Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ? It's a great determiner because it says in there, you deny it. You're not of me. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. He says the controlling thing that the anointing relates to is the person and the work and the promise of Jesus Christ. Whatever they are saying in these verses is the denial of Jesus. Antichrists aren't just against, they are instead of. That you don't have to deny Christ to be Antichrist. You just have to come up with your own way and your own scheme of doing things to replace Jesus Christ in your life. John says, therefore, let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. God hasn't changed midstream. Salvation and resurrection is by faith alone, in Christ alone, in fellowship with God, is by abiding in Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you go today to the church and your, your low fuel light was on on your car. Maybe many of you love driving that way to see how far you can get, but the light glows while you're driving. We've all had it. Let me tell you, you can't live on spiritual empty and experience the anointing. You have to abide in the presence of the Lord. May we be people. Abide in the presence of the Lord. You can't live on spiritual empty and continue to operate in the fulfilling work of the anointing power of Jesus to help you internally and with the deceptions that are around you. We can't. We can't do it. It's like the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus was like, Jesus was like, who touched me? And the disciples said, what do you mean, Jesus, who touched you? There are a group of people around you right now, and he says, no, 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 no. Not like this person. 
no, no, they touched me. Not like them. I'm just not talking about the crowd. He said, there is somebody that came and touched the hem of my garment that touched me. And what went out of me was the anointing. He didn't didn't lose the anointing. But the anointing went out of him and into her. He says, who did that? And they're like, you're crazy, Jesus. I mean, what are you, there's a crowd of, crowd of people. No, no, he's not talking about the people that just want to be close to Jesus in name only. He's talking about those, those that want to touch the hem of his garment because they love him for who he is. And they are desperate for the presence of the Lord to be delivered from their sickness, to be delivered from their disease in these days. Who will be the people of God in these days and just more than wanting to be close? Come to church just in Christian in name only, but don't want to touch the Lord. God says, I'm looking for those that want to be near me, to touch me. I want to live inside of them. I want to be strong. A church is more than just a place you attend. Not like that woman. Oh, no. No, no. She piggybacked off his anointing. You all have the anointing. For those of you in Christ, if you're a non-believer, you don't. You can have the anointing. Christ wants to come and live in you. This is not being about holier than thou because some churches preach that. Well, you don't. We got a monopoly. We got a corner. No, 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 no. That's not what this is about. It's about though the relationship you have with the Father so that you can have the anointing in your life, that special touch of God that wants to come upon you, sir, ma'am, young person. He closes verse 20 and 29. And now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. That's how you know it. He says what you see controls what you do. When he appears, live every day like this is the day that he might appear. Jesus might return today. Glory to God if he does. He might not return today. That's all right. It's down the road. But let's live each day with that perspective in mind. He might appear today. And that's going to affect who I am and all that I do. And my walk and my talk will follow that. Live your life on your tippy toes. That's what we've got. you got to live your life on your tippy toes, sir or ma'am. Some of you are sitting on your butt. you got to live your life on your tippy toes. Like, whoo, there's an expectation. When you go up on your tippy toes, you're getting ready for something. You're getting ready for God to show up in a powerful and a mighty way. He says, you got, you got to live up here. You got to live up here. You got to live up here. You got to live up here so that you are conscious of the expectation that I am going to do inside of you. Church, you got to begin to live on your tippy toes. Live your life that way because it will affect your daily living because listen let eternity dictate time if you're living for this world you are living for time it's a whole lot more than this don't you settle don't you dare settle for what this world has to give you don't you dare because God sent his only begotten son to die for you and to die for me that we would give our whole life. The word is not going to sing these songs today and not mean them in our hearts. All of me, all of me, that we are hungry for the Father.
And we want a relationship through Jesus Christ, his son. And I want us today to be reminded of the truth of 1 John chapter 2. That God wants an intimate relationship with you. Don't love this world. Live in truth today. Live in truth. Stop telling yourself a lie. Stop listening to the lies of the enemy and living your life that way, but abide in him. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for your truth that combats the lies of the enemy in our life today, at this moment, in this hour, that we would stop being deceived and we would stop deceiving ourselves, Lord, but live in truth and live in the knowledge and the grace of who you are, that you are a God that wants to have intimacy with us. And we're willing to be exposed. We're willing to be open. We're going to walk in it like you did, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died.